Welcome to Notes from Your Acupuncturist, the podcast for anyone who's interested in acupuncture, complementary medicine, holistic health, and self-care. I'm your host, Alexa Bradley-Halsey. If you enjoy this show, you can help other people discover it by leaving a rating or a review, by following or subscribing on your favorite podcast listening app, or simply by telling someone about it. And if you'd like to support this show financially, you can become a paid subscriber on Substack for just a few dollars a month. Just head over to substack.com and search notes from your acupuncturist or click the link in the show notes. And one more thing before we get started, just a disclaimer that this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a replacement for medical care from a qualified healthcare provider. Okay, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Notes from Your Acupuncturist. I'm your host, Alexa, and I am so excited to be joined today by healing artist and writer, Camelia Dowling McDermott Lee. Before we get into Camelia's story, I want to first share why I was so excited to get Camelia on the podcast. They contacted me because we share the same academic pedigree. They're a student at Yosan University of Acupuncture and Traditional Chinese Medicine, which is my alma mater. And regular listeners of the show might recognize that name because I've had a number of other Yosan alumni on as guests. So when I asked Camelia to share a little more of their story, they said this, quote, based on unseated Tongva land, I serve as a channel for my ancestral medicine to flow to marginalized communities. I work to exercise Orientalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, settler colonialism, and cissexism from the healing tools I study, unquote. Well, dear listener, that certainly piqued my interest, and I hope it piques yours too. I think we are all going to learn a lot from today's discussion, and I can't wait to dive in. Camelia, welcome. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, before we really dig into this discussion, I want to share some of your credentials because I want listeners to understand that you are not a casual student of some of these topics we're going to get into. You have done the work and continue to do the work. So you're a fifth generation Taiwanese healer, and we'll get more into your lineage in a bit. You've been a student, a practitioner, and mentor in Taoism, Taoist meditation, and Taoist healing modalities for many years, and you're a member of Tianhao Temple, and you've assisted elders in the temple for over a decade, and you're a student of a 22-generation Taoist lineage of parting clouds, and now you're a student at Yosan University, which carries on a 38-generation lineage of healing. You've practiced Tai Chi and Qigong since you were a child, having been taught by your father, and you're really steeped in these ancestral traditions. And then you also bring um, to that your background in African studies, correct? Yeah. So I am a biracial person. My father is Taiwanese and my mother is Irish American, and the blessing of that is I grew up being asked, what are you? Mm. And I was curious. Um, and so I started to study the history of race in this country. And that led me to 
organized with the NAACP, the Coalition to End Environmental Racism, and then to major in Africana Studies because I started out wanting to understand where I fit in and then realized, oh, in order for me and all my loved ones to be free, we really have to reckon with anti-Black racism and all these systems of power. So I bring that way of understanding the world, that research and that background into this healing, which is another side of me. Wow. What a unique background and perspective you bring. I love it. So I'd like to start by talking a little more about your background. You describe yourself as a diasporic Chinese person working to reclaim your ancestral practices. And you say you've encountered some interesting internalized racism in family members who feel that the ancient folk ways of practices like acupuncture are backwards. So I'd really love to hear more about that and maybe some of the comments and attitudes that you've encountered from family members. Definitely. So these comments used to bring up a lot of anger and feelings in me when I was a younger person. And now I have a bit more humility. And I think that comments like, oh, but what if the needles spread hepatitis Mm. or that's not like backed up by peer reviewed Mm. um, research from the FDA. And by the way, I think that is changing. There is research on uh, acupuncture, but now I, I see this coming from the ways that my family has been shaped by war, by Mm. empire, and by anti-Asian racism. So my grandparents were born in the 1920s under Japanese occupation. They survived the U.S. bombing Taiwan because it was seen as a territory of Japan. And then there was a war right across the strait. The nationalists came across and imposed martial law. There had been a nuclear explosion very Mm. close by. And so when my aunt and my father came into the world, my grandparents made some strategic choices that I now see as acts of care. They saw, okay, the United States is basically the only place that seems to be doing well. Mm. And they were so smart and they timed it so that my aunt and my father were born in the U.S. when my grandfather was doing residency, one of those uh, Mm. medical doctor Mm -hmm. things. And they were so strategic in making sure their children had citizenship. And then when they had to return, they enrolled my aunt and my father in Taipei American School. And at Taipei American School, there was a guidance counselor who told my grandparents that my father and aunt weren't going to be able to balance having so many languages because my Mm. grandparents spoke English, Japanese, Mandarin, Taiwanese, and I think maybe some other ones, but they were fluent in those four. And based on that guidance counselor's impact on my family, my grandparents started to just speak English to Mm. my father and aunt. And then my father and aunt 
earned admission to U.S. universities. But this was all part of my grandparents seeing the United States as a place where their children could maybe be away from bombs and martial law. But the trade-off to me is very sad because they emphasize so strongly English, get to the U.S., you have citizenship, make a life there and focus on U.S. culture, by which they meant the dominant white culture. And there was this turning away from the festivals and the traditions Mm. that I have a different perspective on now that I'm older, but resulted in a deep longing in me um, to say, no, I don't think those folkways are backwards or non-scientific, but I see what they were maybe trying to say was our ancient ways don't have as much cultural capital. They're not as valuable. They're not going to get you as far. They're not going to pay your bills. And so we want you to focus on what will allow you to have a life where you're not worried about food and shelter. That's how I interpret those comments now. And Mm -hmm. I think that context is really present with me now when I see acupuncture seen as cool or exotic. (laughs) And I'm like, well, for my family, they were like, this is not as interesting as you getting a degree in Western medicine, which is what <laughs> then my my father and my grandfather and my great grandfather all did. They wow, had, they were MDs or PhDs wow. in biomedicine. That's I find that so fascinating because you really give light to the context that surrounds that attitude. And I wonder, do do you think that these attitudes? of what you call internalized racism, do you think they're really representative of the larger Asian diaspora? Mm. So I know in what I know best is the Taiwanese context specific to my family. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a friend who I know is far more knowledgeable. I'm fortunate to have a friend who's a scholar of Asian American feminism. So Mm. she would know more than I do. My observation is I definitely see a lot of commonalities, I think, within East Asian diasporas. Uh, And I use the word diaspora because calling myself Asian American feels a little difficult because America comes from Amerigo Vespucci. It's a colonial Mm -hmm. name. Mm -hmm. And I'm very aware that I'm on native land that is called the United States of America, but it's in the original people's name. I'm on Tovangar. Mm -hmm. But I do see in other folks who are in my life who are spread away from ancestral lines in East Asia, as well as from sometimes South Asia, an emphasis on acquiring cultural capital, acquiring skills, languages, papers, Mm -hmm. documents, degrees that are valued in the dominant U.S. society. And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I also see this in 
um, loved ones and community members who come from direct immigrants from Central, South America, from Africa, the continent, um, and the many 54 countries in Africa. Mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of recent immigrants, which is a specific subset, because of course there's the people who never left mm-hmm. and descendants of enslaved people who were forced to be here, but those communities where migrants came here with some choice, because sometimes economic conditions are such that you kind of feels like you don't have a choice. But um, I I definitely see this valorization of the dominant U.S. culture, because that's what I know. That's where I was born. And the devaluing of the medicine ways, the folk culture, the remedies that the grandmothers passed down as well, is that going to pay your rent? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is a sad phenomenon, but one that I have a lot more compassion and understanding for now that I've gotten a little bit off my high horse and considered <laughs> why the why these folks made that call, why they decided, you know what, our kids need U.S. citizenship and English. I benefit from that every day, so I can't really. Speak Mm-hmm. be ungrateful for that gift um, mm-hmm. when I know that honestly I think it came from love. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of my first job that I had when I graduated from college. I was a case manager for a refugee resettlement program and we resettled refugees from all over the world here in Tennessee and uh, there was very much an attitude of uh and this was an attitude that existed among the refugee communities, an attitude of, you know, this faster you can adopt the dominant culture of this new place that you're living in, then the, the easier your life is going to be. And it's going to be better for your kids, too. And so I see these as as ways of survival. And as you say, love. You know, people people want better for the generation that comes after them. I, I'd love to hear your perspective as a member of the Asian diaspora who is now studying acupuncture and East, traditional East Asian medicine in the U.S. Um, where do you see these things like racism and anti-Asian bias and white supremacy showing up in how acupuncture is taught and practiced here in the West. Yeah, I am so thankful first to your alma mater, my still current school in the, it's if not unique, certainly remarkable in terms of being a lineage school that was founded by and still led by practitioners with origins in Um, East Asia. Not all acupuncture schools are like that. And I think that actually is quite beautiful and and special. Acupuncture as a regulated field and profession in the US is a new phenomenon. Mm. Of course, like when immigrants came over from China, they brought their medicine with them. But up until, I believe until Dr. Miriam Lee was arrested for practicing 
medicine without a license. And then her patients showed up in droves and eventually it became legalized. The pathway to practice up until I believe 80s and 90s was apprenticeship. And now acupuncture education in the US is uh, masters and doctoral programs that often have price tags. Mm. If you, well, if you have generational wealth, it's going to take 60 to a hundred thousand dollars of that. Mm -hmm. But those of us who don't have generational wealth, that is either living hand to mouth, but usually loans. And we know that forgiveness of student loans is, is still pending as of the time of this recording. Right. So that acupuncture education in the U S structurally in this moment, I think is deeply inaccessible to a lot of people. And again, this is nothing bad reflecting on the knee family whose school we, we went to, but just like the way that this has been set up is that it is. And I think many people don't know this, if you go straight through, which again, I think is feasible if you either take out a bunch of loans or happen to have generational or partner wealth is an immense amount of money, tens of thousands of dollars, if not a hundred thousand dollars, four years out of the workforce. Right. And during that, we get intensive study just the rigor is really medical school, like a MD guess in terms of both the rigor and the memorization. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times folks outside of the profession, um, when they see an acupuncturist who has the LAC uh, credential, they, I doubt most folks understand this person has memorized at least if they went to school in California, 361 acupuncture points, (laughs) indications, combinations, Mm -hmm. 83 herbal formulas, over 300 single herbs, again, all of the indications, contraindications and combinations, and as well as the entire musculoskeletal system, the, (laughs) um, like we learn reading labs, we learn Western physical assessment. It is ridiculously, I mean, that's, I'm at, I'm at the point where I've been there for four years. So I feel a little bit burnt out. So forgive me. <laughs> it is ridiculously thorough yes. and intense. And um, so that acupuncture education system is personally not speaking for youth or anyone. I, I think it is in need of a lot of change to make it more accessible because there's so many people who are, would be amazing clinicians, amazing healers who understandably can't afford to take on that much debt and that much time out of the workforce. The light, the solution, um, and actually I'm going to correct myself, the because yin and yang are both beautiful. So the yes. darkness, the solution, <laughs> the yin, I think that is a counterpoint to the intense intellectual rigor and practice rigor is the not a protocol. So Mm -hmm. a five point protocol that is incredibly effective and has roots in freedom 
with the Young Lords and the Black Panthers outside of California in a lot of places, you can become an Accu Detox specialist. So for yes. folks who are like, I really like this. I think I might want to do this. I really recommend taking the Accu Detox specialist uh, certification training process. It is much more affordable, incredibly effective. For me as a person with a history of my lineage, not holding on to our ancient medicine, mm. it makes sense for me, my particular path to be at this school founded by a Chinese lineage and go really deep with it. But I don't think that's reasonable for a lot of people who would be amazing acupuncturists mm -hmm. who can do the NADA protocol. But again, in California, legally, only people who have done the particular California Right. Shebang. Every, every, every state is a little bit different. Um, but yeah, not a, not as great. And it's a great entry point into acupuncture. We'll put a link to that in the show notes so that people can see. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're really identifying already just in the, in the education and the cost of the education, a barrier for so many people to even become educated to practice this medicine. Um, and I, you know, I, I want to talk about, um, other issues that face the Asian diaspora community at large. Um, you identify things like gentrification, violence, and displacement. And so, you know, what do you see as the, are some of the connections between the practice of acupuncture in the West and these larger community-wide problems? Mm, so I, in my lived experience and body, what always comes up for me is a deep sense of betrayal is a weird word, but it is what comes up for me somatically when I see acupuncturists or other folks who are making a living professionally off of the modalities that my ancestors felt that they had to give up mm. in order for the children to survive. Um, when I see folks who are professionally doing this work, but are silent about anti-Asian racism when the, I don't recall the exact statistic, but it was something absurd, like 300% of an increase in anti-Asian violence during the pandemic, um, because the controlling images, which is what Patricia Hill Collins talks about, the stereotypical racial images in the cultural vernacular, the one of the key images of East Asian people is a yellow peril, a virus mm. unclean. Mm. And even the phrase like snake oil, which refers to bad, like fake medicine, was had to do with scammers trying to copy traditional medicine doctors who do use snake products because mm -hmm. a lot of indigenous cultures know that not just the plants, but also the gizzard of a bird or mm -hmm. uh, any of these wonderful substances of the natural world can be healing. So when I saw during the pandemic, I really felt an emotional and physiological sense of betrayal and anger at some acupuncturists. And it wasn't everybody, but it really hit me when there were folks, particularly white acupuncturists who 
didn't have loved ones they were afraid of. And I don't know, maybe if they were married into an Asian family, but when I was concerned about my community members, my elders in Chinatown at the temple, walking down the street and getting beaten up. And I saw ads for make six figures as an acupuncturist. Here's how you can attract more clients. I felt so viscerally furious at the focus on, it felt extractive. Mm. It felt like an act of, okay, of taking that, okay, mm. you got the training in these beautiful medicine ways that, again, my ancestors felt they had to give up because they couldn't be whole, that they had to assimilate. And then you want to make a lot of money out of it while the people, the elders here are at risk of being harmed just for something they can't change for bodies that look like the elders who preserved this. Like there's no way to to take away that this is a, a medicine that comes from the continent of Asia. And here, Chinatown, where my temple is, during the pandemic, the I think the landlords raised the prices and there was also a lot of decrease in like support for the businesses. So Chinatown, which is this rich multi-ethnic community, there's actually a lot of uh, black and brown communities and seniors who come from not just China, but also Vietnam and Cambodia, but a lot of Asian elders where the median income, I think is something like $17,000 a year, really low where the, the businesses were closing a lot of actually like herb shops and like acupuncture places run by Asian folks had to leave. I mean, some went to the San Gabriel Valley, but now the Chinatown that I go to nowadays in 2023, there's no grocery store. Mm. There is no grocery store for elders to go and get their food. And there's not no laundromat and most of the elders are renters and so the beautiful thing is that the Chinatown community for equitable development CCEDLA has organized produce and grocery deliveries for elders and a lot of tenants rights organizing because the there's at least one building I know of where the elevator was broken for 45 days. And these are elders who are wow. not necessarily mobile. And so the there are all of these serious community issues of facing my, my communities, the folks who actually look like the founders of our school, Asian right. people who have the beautiful almond eyes and the skin tone and who honestly probably know a lot of these remedies. They probably... Right. Most of those folks, those elders wear the cutest, most practical outfits. They've always got a scarf and like <laughs> walkable shoes and a little vest. Like they are living memory keepers. Mm -hmm. But I am, I want to be very clear that I am not against folks who don't have Chinese ancestry doing Chinese medicine. That is reductive and not what I mean, but there is a reciprocity that I feel is actually kind of baked into Chinese medicine in the flow of chi 
the life force energy, which other cultures call prana or uh, ashe in Yoruba land, it's always cycling through us. And our bodies in Chinese medical theory, we reflect the macrocosm. We have summer and winter in our kidneys and heart. We are in relationship. The herbs are guiding our body how to how to heal. There's all of this relationality and flow. And what really disturbs me in Chinese medicine and even in the like crystal roller business, mm -hmm. which is gua sha, mm -hmm. is an extractive relationship where there's not a return of resources, where there's not a showing up, but a just a taking. Oh, this medicine, this remedy, uh, I can sell this, I can mm -hmm. make a profit on this, I'm going to take it and leave, mm -hmm. and then make my business and leave the people who who come into this world wearing a face that they can't take off and are perpetually seen as foreigners, because that is the way that the US constructs Asian people is the yellow peril, the perpetual foreigner, the alien. And so the the frustration for me is the extraction and the remedy for me is like our current CEO. I'm not sure what role Dr. Hoffman has, but Dr. Robert Hoffman, who is a leader at Yosan, I've actually really seen show up for our communities. And there are a lot of folks who I have seen showing up. So those are the, yes. the counterpoints. Yes. And you know, we, as, as, Practitioners, we talk about the energetic exchange on an individual level between practitioner and patient. And what I hear you saying is that we can't forget that that exchange needs to happen on a community level too. And I think that's something that all of us who, who practice and benefit from this medicine can try to keep in mind that this, there is a community level reciprocity that we need to engage in as well. Yeah, I, I really just love hearing that perspective. And, and this also gets into the topic of Orientalism, which I'd like to talk about. Um, what, what is Orientalism and how is it harmful? Ooh so that is a, <laughs> that's a good one and a deep one. So I want to shout out Tyler Fan, PhD, who has written about acupuncture in the U.S., and how it relates to Orientalism. And so his body of work is really important. And I want to awesome. cite that. Yeah, so, we'll, link to, we'll link to Tyler's work in the show notes because I'm, I'm familiar with his work as well. Beautiful. So that's a way that I'm trying to be reciprocal and not pretend I, <laughs> I know all of this organically. I'm so thankful for those who have offered their studies. So Orientalism has its roots in scholar Edward Said, who was actually Palestinian, and he was writing in his 1978 book about the relationship between the West. And for this construct, this way of seeing the world, the West means basically Western Europe and the US, even though <laughs> right. from here in <laughs> the US, from California, <laughs> Western Europe is to my East. But this is an, a way of thinking that um, positions like Western Europe as the, the center, because that was the attitude of intellectuals for, for hundreds of years. So if you were in 
say France than China was to the East and mm-hmm. seen as Eastern. And even we call it like Eastern medicine still. So Oriental, if you speak um, Portuguese or Spanish and many of these language, like that means East. Mm. Oh. <laughs> and so um, this has to do with power, right? Power and money, which is a lot of times what it does come down to. Mm-hmm. So the way that these cultures that had empires, the French empire, Portuguese empire, and so forth, uh, saw the places that were to the east of them were, had a lot to do with domination. And the way that Said says it is, rather than an intention to understand, um, there's this effort to control, manipulate, even to incorporate a manifestly different alternative or novel world. So basically in plain language, I see that as the East is different and to be controlled. And so this difference, this, oh, what's that thing that they do over there? That connects to that idea of like the perpetual foreigner, the alien, that where are you from? Mm-hmm. That uh, you couldn't be here. It couldn't be. I was born in San Diego. Right. Um, but as many of my friends and loved ones who actually look more phenotypically Asian, as I mentioned, I am biracial. So I actually often get asked, what are you? Because people can't place me. But people, my loved ones who are perceived as Asian are often asked, where are you from? Mm. Not here, but where are you really from? Uh-huh. So that other and that different, and you are not from here, that Orientalism results in marginalization of people from, and I think it's important to note West Asia as well, because mm. um, Edward Said was talking about Palestine. Mm-hmm. So Middle East even is a term that can be not chosen by my loved ones who are from there. So West, but that's Asia. So he was thinking of, Western Asia and Palestine and how people were talking about Palestine, that language. Um, And in the U.S., it has a lot to do with seeing if my grandmother actually had these. My um, white grandmother had China, right? Mm -hmm. So porcelain. So this, oh, this is a beautiful thing that came from far away. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note that Orientalism, like any of these systems of harm, is not primarily powered by individual malice. Mm -hmm. So grandmother Verna, bless her heart, she's on the other side now, I don't think had any malicious bias against Asian people that was conscious. But the understanding that I actually find very helpful and that is backed up by the research is that bias and structures of harm that happen through policy and uh, just individual acts of how we talk to each other, these are not usually the way that they are depicted for children when we first learn about harm. Mm. Like, I remember seeing... In movies and TV shows, oh, there's the good guys and the bad guys and the bad guys are evil and they want to do something bad to hurt people. So often when we think about Orientalism, anti-Blackness, homophobia, etc., 
there can be this assumption that, oh, if I have implicit bias, then I'm bad. If I've ever said something that was harmful by accident, I'm bad. And that tends to lead people into a place of shame, Mm -hmm. which we know corresponds to a lot of adverse childhood experiences, um, which tends to be correlated with addiction and depression and not constructive action, not generative change. So if anyone listening has ever said or done something that was like not the most respectful of Asian people, we are all my perspective from Africana studies research and lived experience and organizing is that we are all kind of in this soup together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I am part of Orientalism in and anti-blackness and all of these structures because they're social structures mm-hmm. and social means people. Yes. <laughs> so we're all peopling together imperfectly. And so these structures of power and like the gentrification and displacement of Chinatown even are not usually people being the bad guys and tending to inflict harm, but rather not being conscious and continuing to do what we know. And the good news is that then there is all this possibility for change because we can know better, do better without beating ourselves up about it and notice, oh, wow, maybe I'm not going to ask, where are you from? Or where are you really from? (laughs) (laughs) And maybe I'll think about um, reading some of Tyler Fan's work. There's a way that the systemic look at Orientalism or any of these structures can actually be really freeing. It can get really overwhelming. And I want to name that, especially because we are so saturated with news. But the fact that it's so old, that Orientalism and all these systems of power have been going on for literal centuries, also means that we aren't expected to individually solve it all. And that because it's a social phenomenon that happens because a lot of people are accidentally still doing what they know, all of us can change it. All of us can make little efforts that are like little needles. Yes. Um, that oh, ma- that what make a great the analogy. Body, <laughs> yeah, collective body a little bit happier, a little yeah. bit healthier. Yeah. I, you know, I think the that narrative of the bad guy who wants to do harm is so attractive because it's so simple. And then you just need a hero to vanquish the bad guy and then everything's fine. And it's so much more complicated and difficult to do the actual work of of addressing these harms and trying to correct them because it requires cooperation and so much introspection and a willingness to say I was wrong and I'm going to try to do better next time. And even when I try to do better, I'm still going to be wrong sometimes. And yeah, there's a big, massive structure that is upholding these systems of oppression. And I'm only one person, but it is like acupuncture, you know, one point or one herb does something. And then a whole herbal formula or a whole prescription of acupuncture points is so incredibly powerful. And that's how we humans can be in community as well. Yes. And I love <laughs> even in the community acupuncture model, yes. if you go to uh, your clinic or in these amazing community acupuncture clinics all over that I I even think 
not just the acupuncturist, but everybody who's in an armchair or recliner is also helping the community heal. Like in Lisa Rohedler's books on community acupuncture, they talk about community chi, community energy. So even just every time like someone sits down and gets their needles and rests, it's like you help make the person next to you feel safer because they're not alone. They're getting some treatment and you're not the only one who's taking time for yourself and together that whole room everybody resting and letting their body remember how to be whole together is making the world a little more sweet a little more cool a little more whole and it makes a difference it's so true I see it every day in my clinic it's so true Well, before we wrap up, I want to talk about your new book. It is called Elemental Healing, A Five-Element Path for Ancestor Connection, Balanced Energy, and Aligned Life. And I just picked up my copy, and I am in the fire chapter. I love that you started with fire because that's the phase of love. Um, So what inspired you to write this book? So... I was actually really missing Taiwan during the pandemic. I didn't go back. I actually haven't gone back to Taiwan in five years now. And I was feeling frustrated with acupuncture school. Uh, I was in more of my pain. I'm not in that same place now about how expensive and challenging it has been for me to find these medicines when and it's not the same difficulty for everybody I have it easier than some folks and then also folks who don't have the kind of uh, trauma that my lineage has around anti-Asian racism don't have that particular hurdle that that I come up against and so I was feeling a lot of the more challenging emotional experiences we get to have as humans. (laughs) And I think that alchemy and transformation is a really powerful metaphor that the elements are always changing into each other. And so the alchemy there was thinking, okay, what can I do? I can't personally change a lot of the things I'm frustrated about, but what I can do is write. And I come from writers, my grandmother, Grandma Suchin Lin Lee, who spoke those four languages. And I think she also spoke French or something. She's an amazing, amazing woman. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she's published her own memoir. So wow. it, I think in English and maybe also in Japanese. So in honor, I was just so grateful for the gift of language, the, the ability to write in English, which comes from their choice. And so that felt like something I could do to deal with the friends, the frustration and stuff I was feeling about things I couldn't change. And this also is because of what I mentioned earlier that not everyone can afford to go to acupuncture school, but there is actually a lot of wisdom and kitchen remedies and acupressure and just little ways of making life a little sweeter and a less hard that actually we can do. And so when I was in school, it's so thorough and I wasn't, I'm not yet in clinic, 
but I was thinking about all my loved ones who aren't going to go to acupuncture school, but if, you know, with their copy of the book, they can, they can do a little acupressure. They can make a remedy for a cold and they can learn about the seasons and follow some of those patterns and their life can be a little sweeter, a little less hard. And so I wanted to make all of this amazing knowledge accessible to my communities now and not whenever I finish this long program also because I won't be able to needle everybody and this book can go beyond yes. where I'm going to go. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's it's really a, a, a wonderful book. You have some beautiful meditations in there as well that I want to mention. And it really is you say in the introduction, you think of it like a care package from a dear friend. And it does, it does really feel like that. It is something that I think that um, anyone who's interested in this medicine can, uh, can get something from, can, can learn something from, you can learn more about the medicine and you can learn practices that you can use. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful book. Um, so uh, you have so many offerings. You have your book, um, in addition to your book, and we'll we'll link to your book in the show notes so people can can buy it. Um, you also offer healing services. You have a great website and a newsletter. So tell folks how they can keep up with you and work with you. Thank you. So I am so thankful that I get to connect with everybody here. Mm -hmm. I have a website, and that's probably the I think of it actually as a little clearing because the internet for me can feel like a wild honking city <laughs> full of cacophony and distractions. So I tried to design my website as a little grotto where people can come and my stuff is in a little altar. So there's a newsletter that has uh, updates on upcoming events in this season of summer, so fire time, I am doing some, some virtual and more in-person events that are so exciting. I try to make them sliding scale or donation-based as much as possible. And the, yeah, the great blessing is that my, I, my meditations are an insight timer and those are free. So you can find some sweet little meditations on Insight Timer. And I'm also always happy to refer people out because I'm so fortunate to know so many amazing folks. <laughs> if, if you need something and I don't have it, I probably know someone who does. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. It takes it takes a whole community to, to do healing. Uh, well, we will link to everything in the show notes so that people can easily find you and um, you know some of these some of these other um, folks that you refer to and some of the work that you refer to. Um, Camelia, this conversation has just been so generous and enlightening. I, I just can't thank you enough for joining me today. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you. Likewise. I hope everybody remembers that you are starlight. Love that. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Notes from Your Acupuncturist. If you liked what you heard, please follow this show, leave a rating or review, or just tell someone about it. 
And if you want to join the conversation, you can subscribe to Notes from Your Acupuncturist on Substack, where you can comment, ask questions, participate in discussion threads, watch videos, and read more of my reflections on acupuncture and healing. Huge thanks, as always, to our paid subscribers for helping keep this work sustainable. You, too, can become a paid subscriber for just a few dollars a month. Just head over to substack.com and search notes from your acupuncturist or click the link in the show notes. Until next time, this is Alexa Bradley-Hulsey, your acupuncturist, signing off with love and gratitude.